please open your Bible with me to Isaiah chapter 6. You know, we were in a series in Joshua. Um, the Lord led me to Isaiah chapter 6 as, as I've been praying fervently and with a great deal of tears about how to best address the church with the Word of God and minister to hearts and souls today. And the Lord led me here to Isaiah chapter 6. And it begins by saying, In the year that King Uzziah died. Darn. King Uzziah was a good guy. In a world of corruption. In a culture of chaos. Lies and hate and deceit and murder and killing and and immorality and idolatry. Here's King Uzziah. One of the... One of the few good kings of this whole era. He was a good guy. And in this year, King Uzziah died. And that shook a lot of people's security and left them with a lot of questions. Because they could have thought of about a thousand other people that would have been better to die than King Uzziah. King Uzziah should have lived by our estimation. And, and they could think of about a thousand other people that would have been bar- better to have buried rather than Uzziah. Why did King Uzziah have to die? Yeah, this week we've had a lot of questions, a lot of whys. And I just want to begin by saying the question why is okay. We can't stay with that question, but it's an okay place to start. It's just not an okay place to stay. Psalm chapter 13, David had questions. And he said, How long, O Lord, must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long must I drench my pillow with tears? Look upon me and answer me. That psalm never resolves. It ends with the conviction, but I will trust in your unfailing love. So the psalm began with why, but it didn't stay there. It concluded with who. And he may never know the why, but he knows the who. And he knows that he can trust in God's unfailing love and plan and power. Again, the psalmist cried out in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Something that David experienced in the immediate context, it was also fulfilled in Christ from the cross, in his humanity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we read of that prophet, John the Baptist, the greatest of all the prophets who pointed to Christ not like the other messianic prophets who pointed to him through the corridors of the centuries, but the one who pointed to him uh, right there in the present tense and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. John baptized Jesus. John was so selfless, so consecrated, that when John's disciples began following Jesus, John's disciples that remained were jealous, and they said, Our disciples are following him. And he said, yeah, our disciples are leaving us to follow the one whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. May I decrease and may he increase. This prophet had such conviction of Christ and his lordship 
and that he is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And yet, due to his own righteousness, due to his own commitment to truth, we won't go into the context, but he found himself in prison. He found himself on death row, unjustly so. And guess what? John started to doubt. And he had his questions. And he sent messengers to Jesus who was off preaching and teaching and healing. And the messengers caught up with Jesus. And they said, hey, John wants to know, are you the one? Or should we expect another? Jesus' response was, go back and tell John that the blind are receiving the sight, the lame are walking, the good news is being preached, the poor are receiving hope. In other words, I'm the one. And so John's followers went back to tell John, yes, Jesus says he's the one. And then what does Jesus say? Does he immediately turn around and does he say, can you believe that guy doubting me when things get tough? No. Jesus turns around and he says, I'll tell you guys the truth. No greater man has been born of woman than John. And later John was beheaded. And Jesus grieved that. So why is okay? It's okay to ask why. It's okay to not understand. And it's even okay to never have answers. In fact, we are never commanded to understand everything that affects our heart and soul. We are never called to understand and fully grasp everything that causes us to weep. And it's okay to pray through tears and say, why? And it's okay to say, I don't understand. It's just not okay to stay at the question of why. That question must resolve, even if it does not resolve with understanding, that question must resolve with the conviction of who. I may not understand why some of the events have unfolded in the manner that they have and they've affected my heart and others' hearts in the way that they have, but I trust the who. I trust that God is sovereign and that God is good and that God is for me and God is love and God brings about unspeakable praiseworthy conclusions out of our deepest tragedy. And I believe that God brings about our greatest ministry and anointing out of our deepest sorrow. It's okay to ask why through tears, but we must come to the place where that why resolves, if not in understanding, at least in trust of who is in control. Isaiah 6.1 In the year that King Uzziah died... And though he may not have understood why the good guy died and why the bad guys continued to live, that why culminated into the who. In the very next verse, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up. And this is what our why must culminate into. A deeper experience of who loves us, of who created us, of who redeemed us with his blood. And let's not forget what the Bible says about eternal life. That why shouldn't God take the righteous and the evil live on? This is an evil world. Why shouldn't God leave the evil to remain in an evil world? 
This world is filled with lust and chaos and corruption and idolatry and wickedness. Why shouldn't God leave the wicked to remain to live long lives in a wicked world? The Bible also tells us precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Uzziah traded up. He left this dusty temporal world for eternity. He left the pseudo life for real life. He left temporal life for eternal life. August traded up. And we're celebrating that. Yes, from our perspective, it is tragic because our hearts break because we miss that radiant little guy, that lightning bolt of pure joy, who Austin said lived a full life in two and three quarters years. Oh, but August's light has not been extinguished. It burns brighter than ever. He lives on. Life did not end. Life begins. And though we grieve, we grieve with hope that he is experiencing real life, eternal life. And that gives us so much more to look forward to. Oh, we grieve. But we grieve with hope. We grieve with hope. That that this... Flesh and blood, this is earthly stuff, and this is not real life. Real life is spiritual life. Real life is eternal life. And our friends and family who've gone on before would not come back. I promise you they would not. If you, like Paul, could just catch a glimpse of real life, eternal life, spiritual life, then you would, for this point forward, have a death wish. Not, not, not a suicidal wish, nothing, nothing so selfish, but a, a, a longing for real life, a longing to see Jesus face to face as Paul saw the third heaven. And from that point on, he said, oh, I desire to depart from this body and to be present with the Lord. To be present with this body is to be absent from the Lord. His Spirit's within us, but he said, I want to see him face to face. And I long for that day where I depart this body and then I am present with the Lord face to face for me to live as Christ. This is why we go on living. For Christ's sake. To worship Christ, to trust Christ, to glorify Christ. And the more intense life becomes, the more wise that we have with, around us, the more our heart hurts, the more tears that we shed, the more we live for Christ, but the more we look forward to seeing Christ. For me to live as Christ, but to die, oh, to die is gain. Paul said, what should I choose? I'm hard-pressed between the two. It's better for you that I go on living, but it's far better for me to be absent from the body. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So why shouldn't God let the wicked continue to live in a wicked world? And why shouldn't God bring the most righteous home to enter into real life and beautiful life and eternal life for the joy of the Lord and the joy of our loved ones who've gone on before us? This is our blessed hope. And as Cassidy said earlier, you guys out there, can somebody say amen if you agree to that? In the year that King Uzziah died... Let that bring us to a fresh revelation of our Lord and Savior. In the, king, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. With two He flew. And with one He called to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth 
is full of His glory. And when our hearts are heavy and our hearts are breaking and our eyes are weeping and we don't have the resolution to the wise, we can trust in the one who is glorious. We can trust in the one who makes all things work together for the good. We can trust in the one who brings beauty out of the ashes, who brings our deepest ministry out of our most heartbreaking experience. That is a fact of our spiritual life. Anointing and ministry does not flow out of credentials and success stories. You guys know that, right? Anointing and ministry that heals and sets people free is born out of suffering. It's born out of sorrow. Which is why in the year that King Uzziah died, when our world is shaken, we have a fresh revelation of God. Let me read the words of Charles Spurgeon. And he wrote, In seasons of severe trial, there is nothing on earth for Christians to trust in. They are compelled to cast themselves on God alone. When our vessel is beached on its side and no human deliverance is available, we must simply and entirely trust in the providence and care of God. It is a happy storm that wrecks us on this rock. Oh, blessed hurricane that drives the soul to God and God alone. Sometimes there is no getting at God because of the multitude of our friends. But when we are so friendless, so poor, so helpless that we have nowhere else to turn, we can fly to our Father's arms and be blessedly held there. Oh, tempest-tossed believer, it is a happy trouble that drives you to your Father. Now that you have only your God to trust, See to it that you put your confidence in Him. Show the rich how rich you are in your poverty when the Lord your God is your helper. Show the strong how strong you are in weakness when underneath you are the everlasting arms. Incredible words, aren't they? So when our confidence is shaken, we cling to Christ. And that makes that event that shook our confidence the deepest blessing of our life. Austin said that the verse that he was clinging to this week was James chapter 1 verse 2. Count it pure joy, my brothers, when you face various trials. He said, I am living and breathing that promise. It's because when we are shaken to trust in Christ, in Christ alone, we experience a reservoir of limitless love and strength that we never imagined. The Bible defines it like this. It's a peace that passes all understanding when the God of all comfort carries us. Some of my heroes in the faith are Horatio Spafford and his wife. Horatio Spafford experienced incredible tragedy. He was a wealthy businessman, prominent lawyer in Chicago, and he, um, he lived in the mid-1800s. October 8, 1871, the Great Fire of Chicago swept through the city. Horatio Spafford lost almost everything in his real estate portfolio. So they were devastated. They had four girls 
and they placed a lot of their confidence in their material possessions, and that was wiped out in one tragedy. Well, Horatio Spafford was a large supporter of the great evangelist D.L. Moody, and D.L. Moody was conducting a crusade in London, so they were going to be part of that crusade and support D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody, and so Horatio Spafford was tying up loose ends in Chicago, and he sent his family on ahead of them, ahead of himself. Uh, His kids' names were 11-year-old Annie, 9-year-old Margaret Lee, 5-year-old Bessie, and 2-year-old Tanetta. They boarded the the, the steamship Villa du Havre to cross the Atlantic Ocean. On November 22, 1873, the Villa du Havre was struck by an iron sailing vessel. 226 people lost their lives. All four of Horatio Spafford's daughters. His wife, Anna, alone survived. She sent a telegram to her husband. Saved alone, what shall I do? After receiving Anna's telegram, Horatio immediately left Chicago to be with his wife in London. En route to England, Horatio crossed the precise coordinates where his four daughters perished. Mid-ocean, the waters three miles deep, Horatio looked over his daughter's icy Atlantic grave. How would you respond? He was not overcome with despair, with despair, but he experienced that peace of God that passes all understanding. And he went back into his room and he wrote down these words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That hymn has profoundly bolstered the hope of millions of followers of Christ throughout the generations. And yet there's more to Horatio Spafford's tragedy and his testimony. As they were putting the pieces of their life back together, they had three more children. Two daughters and one son. And their only son they've ever had. And in 1818, uh, they, lost, they suffered the loss of their son to pneumonia. Word was circulating through the church. Oh, what did the Spaffords do to experience such sorrow and grief in their life? But God was deepening their anointing. God was deepening their ministry. He was expanding His glory in their life. And they moved to Israel with another couple. And they set up the Spafford house that ministered to the poor, to the destitute, to the starving, to the malnourished children. And over a century later, that house is still ministering to Christian, Jewish, and Palestinian children and orphanage, and orphans and binding up the brokenhearted. Spafford recorded in his journal, Lord, I have always up to this day been holding on to something of the flesh. I crucify the flesh with its affections and lusts. Henceforward, I... I I am a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. I rely exclusively, exclusively on the power of God in Christ. I am a miracle of grace. Blessed God, how patient thou hast been with me. And so the American colony that the Spaffords founded in Jerusalem is ministering to people today. It greatly ministered to people throughout World War I, throughout World War II, and continues to minister to the malnourished and the orphans today. 
And so let's take our whys to Christ by ruthlessly anchoring our soul to His character. He is good. He is glorious. He is wise. He is sovereign. There is no harm in Him. There is no malintent. There is no carelessness in Him. There is no oversight in Him. There is pure love, pure power, pure goodness, pure holiness. And we don't have to understand, but we can trust Him. And when we trust Him, oh, in the year that King Uzziah died, we will have a fresh fresh revelation of God's goodness and His glory and His holiness and His grace. And it will so impact us that all we can do is worship Him and praise Him. So before we continue in the sermon, let's worship and let's praise God with it is well with my soul. Would you stand with me, please? Father, we don't understand everything for sure. And we only have tears and whys at times. But we know who You are, and You are good and glorious and powerful and sovereign and holy. And You bring beauty out of ashes and joy out of sorrow and ministry out of heartache. Oh, You bring the depth of anointing out of affliction. You never waste a hurt. No, You are not a careless God. You are careful. And You are careful with our hurts. They are treasures to You. And You never waste them. For a myriad of reasons, You choose our suffering and our weakness to bring Your greatest, Your greatest beauty out of. You don't glorify Yourself through our success stories. You glorify Yourself through our sorrows as Your grace is put on display and manifests gloriously. And Lord, we will surrender the wise as we trust in your glory and grace. We will surrender the wise as we trust in your glory and grace. And we will grieve, but not as those without hope. We will anchor our soul to your eternal glory and eternal life. And as a result, we have more to live for now, Christ. And so much more to look forward to in heaven. So let's worship, church.
verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. It's the presence of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God. When we have nowhere to go but Christ and we embrace Christ and Christ alone as our soul's sustenance, we experience the presence and the power of God in a way that we never imagined, and we realize this is the stuff of life. Not worldly possessions that we're so fond of, or the approval of others, or the comforts and conveniences of life, or circumstances all unfolding in a timely manner, just as we anticipated. No, this is the stuff of life. The presence and power and love and mercy and grace of God sustaining me. Because He's brought me to a place where I trust in Him exclusively. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I have dwelt in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of kings, the Lord of hosts. This speaks to the holiness of God, the very best of the best, the prophet Isaiah. It's filthy rags compared to God's righteousness. And he didn't say, wow, God. He said, woe is me. I am a sinner in the presence of a holy God. I'm like a tea candle in the presence of the sun. I'm about to be annihilated. Verse 6, a picture of the gospel. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Make no mistake, the only righteousness that ever matters is Christ's righteousness. The only righteousness that will ever access heaven and be in the presence of God for eternity is Christ's righteousness. And what matters most in your life is that you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the garments of salvation, having placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone. Have you done that? If it was your family that received the phone call of your surprising passing into eternity, would they be comforted that they will one day see you again? Would you have a peace that you will be in heaven? Do you have that assurance in your heart? Do you have a relationship with Christ so that you are growing to the point where you're actually beginning to long for Him rather than store up little conveniences and comforts in this world? Oh, what a wasted life. Who lives for the, uh, the worldly possessions and the comforts and conveniences of this world and everybody thinking that you're a pretty great person. What an empty life. What a wasted life. Have you been clothed in the righteousness of Christ because you've trusted in Christ completed and sufficient atonement for you on His cross so that as a result, the Spirit of Christ has entered your heart, you're a new creation, and He's clothed you with His very own righteousness. If that's happened, then you'll continue to grow in a relationship with Christ so that you begin to long for heaven more than this world. I can't imagine going through the tragedy that we've been praying about this past week. The tragedy to us, and it's glory in heaven. It's which side of eternity that you're looking at, at, at this, which perspective you're looking at this from. 
Can you imagine weathering this storm apart from a vibrant relationship with Christ where you trust His character? Can you imagine? If you don't know Christ, you can be offended at God. The verse that the Farleys are holding on to is John chapter 6, verses 60 through 68, where Jesus said, You must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood to have eternal life. And half the crowd left. And then Jesus immediately looks to his followers and he said, Does this offend you? Are you going to leave too? They said, But where would we go? If we don't have a relationship with Christ, events that strike our lives, not just tragedies, but little irritations are offensive to us. Not just tragedies, get this. Small, microscopic, little inconveniences throughout life offend us and we're offended at God. But we must come to a place where our spiritual maturity grows from that of an infant to that of a mature follower of Christ, where we say, no, this does not offend me, Lord. You have the words of life. You are life. I'm not going to walk away. I'm not going to stop trusting you. No, I'm not offended at you, God. Never. Where would I go? You are life. I'm anchoring my soul to your goodness and to your glory. I don't need to know why. You don't need to explain anything to me, God. I'm following you. You're my rabbi. You don't have to explain to me. I trust you because you are life. No, I'm not offended. You are good and you are glorious. Where would I go but to anchor my soul in who you are and how you love me and how I know that you bring beauty out of the ashes and joy out of sorrow and our greatest ministry out of our deepest agony and pain and our deepest anointing to set the captives free out of our greatest sorrows and afflictions. No, this doesn't offend me. Where would I go? And we need to understand that we define good as our comfort and God defines good as His glory being manifest in our character. Those are two entirely different agendas. We define good as our comfort, don't we? Did you have a good day today? Yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty comfortable, no setbacks, no struggles. Nothing out of the ordinary. Ordinary is a good day. Did you have a good day today? No, I didn't have a good day today. I had a flat tire. I ran out of gas. I got fired. No, it was not a good day today. See, we define good as being comfortable and having a whole bunch of little conveniences. God defines good as His glory being reflected in our character. And make no mistake, these two agendas are mutually exclusive. They do not, they cannot, they will not coexist. And God will not back down. He will not relent in His agenda in our life. And that is our character reflecting His. So that we exclusively trust Him. Johnny Erickson Tata has inspired millions throughout the years with her faith as she learned to define good the way God defines good and ruthlessly trust in Him, even in the midst of discomfort. As a young girl, 17 years of age, she dove off the Chesapeake Bay, not understanding how shallow the ground was. She immediately became a paraplegic. 
There were times throughout her life that she was suicidal. There were times throughout her life that she asked why. There were times throughout her life that she was offended at God. But she didn't stay there. She came to a place of trust in Christ so that her Christ reflected Christ's character. Her character reflected Christ's character. And as a result, millions have been inspired through her life. Johnny writes, In the Psalms, we're told that God does not deal with us according to our sins and iniquities. My accident was not a punishment for my wrongdoing. Whether or not I deserved it, only God knows why I was paralyzed. Maybe He knew I'd be ultimately happier serving Him. If I were still on my feet, it's hard to say how things would have gone. I probably would have drifted through life, marriage, divorce, dissatisfied and disillusioned. When I was in high school, I reacted to life selfishly and never built on any lasting values. I, simp- I lived simply for each day and the pleasure I wanted and almost always at the expense of others. But now you're happy, a teenage girl asked. I am. I wouldn't change my life for anything. I feel privileged. God doesn't give such special attention to everyone and intervene that way in their lives. He allows most people to go right on their ways. He doesn't interfere even though he knows they are ultimately destroying their own lives, health or happiness, and it must grieve him terribly. I am so thankful he did something to get my attention and he changed me. She aligned her definition of good to God's definition of good and she trusted him and his goodness. And as a result, he intensified the anointing upon her life and has glorified himself through her and millions have come to Christ and their faith has been bolstered as a result of it. Let's go back to our text. Verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go. Say to this people. And God brings us to a place of trust where we trust Him. We trust His goodness and His grace even if it means being uncomfortable, we count the cost and we follow Christ and we with a surrendered heart say, here am I, Lord, send me. Use me to glorify yourself. Use me to tell others about the gospel. Use me to tell others how much you love them. Use me to take somebody by the hand and bring them across the line of faith so that they know you. Use me to impact eternity. Use me, God. Let me step out of my world of comfort and conveniences and having everything under my control and understanding everything because everything unfolded exactly as I planned it. And Lord, let me come to a place where I trust you even if I don't understand it because I trust your character. You are good and you are careful with hurts. You never waste a hurt. You bring beauty out of sorrow every time we trust you. So I trust you exclusively and I pray, God, use me. To glorify yourself. Use me to impact eternity so souls are saved and heaven bound. Use me to bind up the brokenhearted, to comfort all who mourn. Use me, God. Will you pray that? So would you stand with me, please?
So, would you bow your heads? Let's just join hearts, guys. Let's pray for the Farleys. Oh, God, we cry out to you to continue to strengthen the Farleys with your peace that passes all understanding. You are good, you are glorious, and you are on display in their life. You are funneling a joy into the kids, a joy into the parents that the world did not give them and the world cannot take away. Continue to sustain them with your limitless reservoir of love and strength. To you be the glory for this. And Lord, we pray that we would all grow up in our walks from infancy to maturity as we learn to anchor our soul not in comforts and conveniences, but in your character and your glory because you are good, you are glorious, you never waste a hurt, you make all things new. This dusty world is just earthly stuff. This is not our home. Lord, we're not going to get too comfortable, too familiar, too in love here. This is just earthly stuff. But we long for heaven. We long for a better life. We long for eternal life with you where your spirit and your love reigns, where there's no need of the noonday sun because your glory and grace and love give the light and give the warmth and embrace everyone who is in your midst. We look forward to that day, God. We long for that day so that we grieve. Oh, we grieve. But not without hope. No. We anchor our souls to your goodness and glory and eternal life. It makes all things new. Thank you for resurrection life. Thank you for keeping Austin August in your keep. Thank you that he is more alive now than ever before. Show us, Holy Spirit, where we are committing idolatry by trusting in comforts and conveniences and worldly possessions and earthly loves and earthly lusts more than you. What are we trusting in? What are we relying upon? What are we running to more than you? I pray that this morning we would all step up from infancy to maturity and cling to Christ alone so that we conclude, here am I, Lord, send me. Would you pray that? Would that be your resolution at the end of this service so that church doesn't end, but you enter the mission field? Would you pray, here am I, Lord, send me. Use me everywhere, to everyone, to be the light of life and an extension of your glory and grace. Would you pray, here am I, Lord, send me, use me something very practical I want to challenge everybody to bring with you next week three people who need Christ I'm challenging you to pray like Isaiah use me God send me so I'm challenging everybody to bring three people with you next week who need Christ if you would accept that challenge raise your hand high Okay, praise God. If you did not accept that challenge, why? What, what are you living for? What are you living for? Man, we're going to share the gospel. People are going to get saved. I want to ask you again, if you'll accept that challenge to bring three people with you next week who need Christ, raise your hand high. 
Okay. All right. I'm going to ask you if you did next week. And many people will come to Christ. So, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would use everyone to go into the highways and byways and compel people to come in so that your house is full and you are glorified and many people come to Christ. And now, church, let's respond with worship. And I invite you to use this altar right here to present your body a living sacrifice. And like Isaiah, pray, Here am I, Lord. Send me. Thank you.